Welcome to Indefinable Magic. Random ideas and occasionally contrived jokes, all in the guise of being an essay-come-lecture about a programme in which, essentially, the school geek blows up the school bullies. Written and presented by me, Toby Haydock. Very much one on the school geek end of things. Tonight's episode, Defining the Magic. Well, I may as well try to herd cats, juggle gravy, or explain exactly what's going on in Warrior's Gate, but, well, it's anniversary week, let's have a bash, shall we? So what is it that you like about Doctor Who, people ask me, all the time. Have you got all day, I say? No, they usually haven't and a look of, oh heck, is he about to kidnap me, flashes momentarily across their suddenly discomforted faces. But they're lucky. I've seen fans who aren't me take all day to answer simpler questions about Doctor Who, spouting forth a level of detail that makes Ted Stryker dispensing his life story in Airplane seem like an exemplar of pithiness. But we, listener, we have all day, don't we? Well, we have the length of a podcast that doesn't have to be passed by an executive producer or okayed by a script editor or fitted precisely into schedules between other podcasts. Time is on our side. It's just you and me in a room. Okay, we're in separate rooms, but if you choose to play all the way through, then you're essentially consenting to an arrow kidnap. Welcome to my radio radiator. Feel free to handcuff yourself to it. And look, this one is being written with anniversary week in mind. Hello, happy birthday. That's 59 years of Doctor Who and two years of these podcasts. That's two years I've spent in between proper work, uh, writing Radio 4-style semi-comic monologues that are too niche to ever get commissioned for Radio 4. I'm still not quite sure, therefore, why I'm doing it, but it beats putting up those shelves, going for a run or following Lawrence Fox on Twitter. And fortunately, the internet is full of niches, and into this one you have crawled, willingly, and to my continued but grateful bafflement. Now there's no doubt that you will probably like very different things about Doctor Who than I. That's fine, of course. Out there, there is someone who thinks the twin dilemma is better than the caves of Androzani. Someone else who doesn't think that Sergeant Benton is one of the show's greatest characters. Oh, there's someone who skips through the opening and closing titles when watching stories back. Someone who likes the show because they think it's a bit naff. Someone who likes the show because they think it's terribly serious and should be taken terribly seriously, and if you don't take it terribly seriously, then you're probably a racist or something. And somebody who thinks the historicals are boring. Well, I'm none of those people. Now, I don't know much about whether Doctor Who is great art, but great art appeals to lots of different people in lots of different ways and I know what I like. But can any of us nail down why we like what we like about it? What it is that has made this show that we dedicate time, energy, creativity, passion, commitment, and let's be honest, a lot of pointless arguments to? I mean, I'm not even a science fiction fan. 
I mean, I say that, but I've yeah, I've seen all of Blake Seven more than once, and all of Star Trek: The Next Generation and Deep Space Nine. But I've never read Dune, and I still haven't seen a full episode of Stargate, though I could probably name the cast. And I have the audacity to broadcast highfalutinly about Doctor Who, and yet I've never so much as had a whiff of an episode of Sliders but could probably name all of the cast, and have only sporadically passed through the Avengers, actually both British bowler-hatted Avengers and American lycra-slash-rubber-body-armour stuff that the kids seem to prefer these days Avengers. And yes, I can probably name the casts of both. At this naming the cast business, it's kind of like knowing the essentials about something without acquainting myself with the product itself. I can list the ingredients of a bolognese, but have never eaten one, says no one, because eating is the enjoyable bit. That's the bit you're supposed to do. Unless you are Mr Geeky McGeek of Geekerton Road, Geeksville. Yeah, the Haydock thing's just a pseudonym, by the way. Just a pseudonym that's difficult to spell or pronounce. A bit like the word pseudonym, actually. Anyway, look, when I was a student and had little money, I kept abreast of all the movies by buying Empire magazine rather than going to the cinema. And the world of sci-fi was filled in for me in the pages of SFX magazine, which told me everything about the current iteration of Flash Gordon or Sequest DSV or Andromeda or several other programmes that proper science fiction experts probably know like the back of their hands and I've never seen. I'm still looking for Cleopatra 2525. But listen... Yeah, my digestion of popular culture. It's always been a bit like finding out about the ingredients of a sandwich, reading someone else's observations about said sandwich, immersing myself in detailed interviews with the people who made the sandwich, seeking out reviews of the sandwich, but not actually eating the sandwich. But I have podcasted before about the beauty of cast lists and my joy of spotting actors. I saw some tweet the other day, and the person tweeting was surprised to clock for the first time that Bregan in Power of the Daleks was the same guy as Marcus Scarman in Pyramids of Mars, and my initial reaction was, well, surely everyone knows that. But of course they don't, and why should they? And it was nice to see that in clocking it, uh, it had made their day. And in fact, I think the perpetrator was possibly a cosplayer who probably takes it as read that they could identify the name and factory number of each piece of material on Colin Baker's coat. Entry-level stuff to a cosplayer, but a rainbow-coloured mystery to me. Indeed, if the boot was on the other foot, there's many a fan who could be taken aback by what hasn't lodged in my head. I mean, I could take a stab at a production code, but probably not get them 100%. But hey, 4Q... Uh, That's Face of Evil. I know that one. It's the nearly rude one. There are certain Hartnell episode titles I'd be hard-pressed to name in a high-presser situation. American listeners, episode titles are what we English people called episode titles as opposed to story titles, because episode titles means episode titles. But anyway... I'll talk to you about football later. So let's pray that uh, my knowledge is never put to the test, the final test even, otherwise it might end in checkmate. Oh, and the Virgin New Adventures, they're pretty much an undiscovered country for me, and yet I have the audacity to call myself a fan. But that's the whole point. 
I don't need a licence. And the idea that one fan is somehow more legitimate than another fan seems to me to be a ludicrous one. We are all subservient to the show, to Doctor Who. We're just the audience. Now, that's important, yes, but there's no pecking order. And most people really don't care about the ins and outs of Doctor Who, let alone who is watching it. So aspiring to be an important fan is, it seems to me, a bit like fancying yourself as the best leper in the colony. We're all in the same boat. It's just that our unsightly scabs are in different places. And Doctor Who appeals to any number of different people, and quite a lot of them are scabby, myself included. Um, I'm a lifelong psoriasis patient, so I can do scab jokes before you write to complain. And you'd be writing to me anyway. I don't have people. So just don't. Write something cheerful somewhere else instead. You'll feel much better. And it appeals to all these different people in many different ways. And I think that is a sign of Doctor Who's charm. But I still haven't worked out exactly what that charm is, that indefinable magic, oft quoted and indeed the inspiration for the title of this series of podcasts. So I'm going to indulge myself and think about what makes Doctor Who magic for me. Now, it may well be not your idea of shallymagallamy zoop, but, well, it's a scattergun sample of the things that I think about that makes Doctor Who wrap me in a warm glow of contentment, that gets me galvanised into a creativity frenzy, or piques my curiosity, or takes me back to a happy time, or a sad time, or sometimes, well, just makes my day pass with a little more excitement than it otherwise would have done. I mean, trees are brilliant, aren't they? Majestic, biological miracles, lifesavers of the planet, beautiful silhouettes against a winter sky. If you touch them, you can feel their power, smell the sheer invigorating energy emanating from them, and they're mottled and gnarled like wise old soldiers who've endured it all without ever having their spirit diminished. On paper, trees are probably better than Doctor Who, although on paper they'd literally be on their own dead body, so don't do that. But much as trees are probably more important in the greater scheme of things, they don't do for me what Doctor Who does. I can't see the trees for the Who. Now there are probably ingredients of the show that are so important to you that I don't even notice. Some things that vex me that you couldn't give a monkeys about. But hopefully some of what follows will strike a chord. Oh, I'm talking of chords. It's the diddly-dums, isn't it? The diddly-dum, 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 ooey-oo. That theme tune. Haunting and melancholic. It sounds like it's been rendered by no musical instrument you can imagine. The sound of time and space spooking you with its heartbeat and echoes, whilst also rhyming with the title of the show. Diddly-dum, diddly-dum, it's Doctor Who, ooey-oo. It's diddly-dum, who are you? I'm Doctor Who, who are you? I'm Doctor Who, diddly-dum. Do you, do you, do you, do you do that, that sometimes? I do. And I just did it out loud for you. Never doing that again. Oh dear. But <laughs> people do it on the street, don't they? If they see a long scarf, they cry. Now, I might be wrong, but I don't get a sense of derision whenever that happens. It's more the joy of a connection, a shared remembrance, cultural DNA. And ooey-oo is, as I've demonstrated, well, it's a rhyme with Doctor Who, in that great tradition of theme tunes rhyming with the title of the show, even though the theme tune doesn't have any lyrics, and, oh my God, it'd be awful if it did. But there are other, you know, 
equally lauded and loved examples. The Sweeney, the Sweeney, the Sweeney, the Sweeney, the Sweeney, EastEnders, EastEnders, EastEnders. Yeah, I mean, some don't actually rhyme, but we kind of make them anyway. But ooey-oo into Doctor Who is easy. There's no shaving of the square peg required here. And that title as well, Doctor Who. It means nothing, yet it means the show. It keeps the central figure a mystery. He or she is a reassuring presence, and yet unknowable. Like a parent, always there, and yet they never truly let you know everything about them. They have a lofty detachment, and sometimes behave in ways you don't understand. The Doctor has all of that, but is also funny and exciting and brave and daft. And if you want to, you can fancy them. The fancy them thing, by the way, is quite a modern phenomenon. When I was young, that wasn't a thing. We didn't need to find people sexy to be interested in them. But that's because we were better than you. I'm also a straight male, so for most of my life, Doctor Who wasn't cast in a way that he'd be the target of my affections anyway. But I don't think good looks were our criteria when casting the lead of the show. Companions may be a different thing. But hang on, most... UK TV shows at the time didn't really have pin-up leads. I can't imagine anybody frothing over the cast of Juliet Bravo or getting all hot under the collar at the Aneedin Line's array of totty. So whilst I'm delighted for people who fancy the Doctor these days, and I don't really think we're better than you, by the way, that was a joke. That's the other thing I love about Doctor Who fans. It's our ability to take a joke all the time. Um, and I'm delighted for those who find a creative outlet in, I don't know, writing slash fiction or stanning thasmin or whatever it is the kids do these days. Doctor Who and what I like to get up in the bedroom are for me, however, two very separate pastimes. So look, the Doctor for me was never a figure of unrequited love, a pin-up. I mean, I did have pin-ups of Doctor Who, but they weren't there to provoke heart-throbbery. And the Doctor's not our friend either, I don't think, or our mum and dad. I mean, I had a big dad-shaped hole in my childhood. My dad left when I was four. But was the Doctor filling that? Maybe. Did I need a male identification figure to replace the one I didn't have? I don't know. You'll have to ask a psychologist. But if he was then he wasn't a like-for-like replacement. He didn't talk back to me, or encourage me at school sports day, or, or put a plaster on my knee. But instead, he provoked my interest. He indulged my fantasies. And he was funny and scary and brave, and seemed such good fun you'd follow him into danger without even thinking about it. You'd definitely get inside his police box. just a police box, and yet a thing of ramshackle charm that contrives to look incongruous in whatever setting, the perfect embodiment of the show. It's a programme that continually contrasts the ordinary and the extraordinary. The show that posits a yeti on the loo in Tooting Beck, shop window dummies that come to life in a storefront like one we would pass most days, deadly vegetation that can suddenly strangle you, or scary statues, or a monster under the bed, or a crack in the wall. It's as comfortable as fish and chips and cricket and tea is Doctor Who, but then it makes the fish deadly, the cricket ball explosive, and the tea a shapeshifting alien who wants to invade the world through the medium of beverage. 
It's our world in toy box form, so redolent of childhood and yet a perverse and offbeat, often even woozy version of it. It's a science fiction show that often sachets between light ent and gritty drama, for God's sake. Everything about it is anomalous. As anomalous as a police call box standing at a slightly jaunty angle on a clifftop in a desert or silhouetted against an alien sky. But you can put the TARDIS anywhere, though, can't you? I mean, its invention came from necessity as much as anything. It needed to fit four people inside, it needed to not take up a whole studio, be easily transportable and something recognisable from 1963 London. We don't ever really stop to ask why it chose that shape to blend into the bric-a-brac of a junkyard, but I don't really care because it's everything Doctor Who should be. Charming, slightly odd, very British and a bit broken. I never jumped on board the Starship Enterprise, though... I can name all the cast, Natch, because I could never quite empathise with serving on the best ship in the fleet with the best goddamn crew on a righteous mission. Doctor Who, on the other hand, seemed to travel through space and time without a clue where he'd end up, in a funny-looking box, the controls of which you had to hit with a hammer or bang with your fist in order to make it work properly. It felt like I felt. Aimless, imperfect, unsexy, but capable of exciting things, if only you let it. The fact that the very first thing the TARDIS does in the series is to break the chameleon circuit fails in episode two of the whole show, much to the Doctor's discomfiture, is a sign that this isn't a programme about perfection. And yet, the very concept of the machine that is bigger on the inside than it is on the outside has a wow factor, but it also tells you this isn't an ordinary programme. Put your boring rationality to one side. We're daring to be different. And also, yes... This looks impossible and silly, but you'll get over it, and you'll need to, in order to enjoy all the brilliant things that this allows us to do. And that's another key to the show's magic. It is a very silly idea. And at its best, its creators do one of two things. They either say, yes, it's very silly, but we're going to play this entirely seriously. Or they say, yes, it's silly, and so bloody what? Let's just go for it. Now, both are equally valid approaches, and both have produced Doctor Who at its best. We're going to throw you into a blitch-stricken World War II London and haunt you with a gas-masked child calling for his mummy and scare you out of your wits. Or we're going to do a serious-minded examination of the massacre of the Huguenots in 16th-century Paris. Or... We're going to make daffodils and yellow-blazered washing powder salesmen inimical to all life on Earth, or have Raquel from Coronation Street spearhead an invasion of cute alien walking fat beasts, or we're going to make Bertie Bassett the deadly embodiment of Thatcherism. Fill your boots, this is what we do. And it shows the strength of the format, that you can interpret it in such wildly different ways, and yet be true to its spirit. But what is that spirit? Well, it's about a benevolent alien who gets into scrapes and tries to stop the bad guys. It's as simple as that. And the Doctor is benevolent. That doesn't mean that he or she is always nice or easygoing. But he or she is generally fun to be with or observe. And the character's alien nature can manifest itself in different ways. But essentially, the Doctor's extraterrestrial origin allows for a certain eccentricity, which we find amusing and disarming and compelling. And eccentricity is hard to pull off, 
There's nothing worse than someone who thinks they are eccentric or contrives an eccentric personality. And that's the last thing a genuinely eccentric person does. But the very best doctors are natural eccentrics, who are also capable, dramatic actors. Shakespearean and a lightness of touch, the weight of the world carried by someone with a spring in their step. They laugh in the face of danger, not because the show is a comedy, but because the best way to defeat the bad guys and the bullies is to undermine their power through good humour and imagination. And the deployment of wits, improvisation, intelligence and good humour instead of brute force is equally as effective in the schoolyards inhabited by its impressionable viewers as it is in the programme itself. I fended off more than one pushy alpha male of the dinner queue with a funny line I'd nicked from the doctor because my tongue is the only muscle I've ever really exercised, so trying to prosper using any of the other ones would have ended more unconvincingly than the Sontaran experiment. But talk is cheap. It's not just words. It's attitude. The doctor isn't one of those people who, if you posted, I just had the most wonderful ice cream on Facebook, would reply, don't like ice cream. The doctor isn't there to bring you down or lower your horizons or spoil your fun. The doctor is curious and would, at his or her best, enable you to broaden your mind or see everyday things in a different way. To see the daisiest daisy. Now, the flip side of that coin is that some of the everyday things you see in a different way in Doctor Who are like statues that are scary, telephone cords that'll throttle you, or cracks in the wall that will gobble you up. But hey, it's not supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be scary. Scary fun. But they're containable scares, and that's where the time slot is important. This magic show, Doctor Who, needs to be suitable for children's parties. The children's own programme that adults adore is how Gerard Garrett of the Daily Sketch described Doctor Who. And that's vital to the casting of its spell. As scary and frightening as Doctor Who is, it is scary and frightening in a way that has to be suitable for children. Now, it's fair to say the show has sometimes pushed how far it can go, and those moments retain their impact well into adulthood when you're well past being accustomed to such stuff. Ooh, that's a bit much, I think, when Kondo's stomach blows out in the brain of Morbius, or the shredded, oozing, throbbing head of Stengos begs his daughter to shoot him in Revelation of the Daleks. But neither of those moments would make a modern cinema patron blink, nor would they alarm a 21st century teenager for a second. But when I saw them as a child, there was the thrill that they were perhaps a little overzealous in the gore department for the show that I was watching. And that made them exciting. It made them exciting then, and it hasn't depleted their power now. And I'm 50 and have seen worse violence and trauma and death both on and off screen. But on the whole, Doctor Who's scares and frights are of the containable kind, and at their best they grip both adults and kids, and that's a hard balance to strike, and one that the programme has deftly manoeuvred for most of its run in a way that few other series or serials even aim for. The demarcation between adult drama and kids' drama is pretty sharp, and most family viewing is really more of the light entertainment variety. And yet, Doctor Who has spent most of its life on jazzy Saturday night, often before or after comedy or light-end shows. A programme that depicts genocide, murder, 
peril and sometimes philosophy as the hors d'oeuvre for Larry Grayson, Graham Norton or the two Ronnies. And yet, somehow, it still works. Mortal peril among the fairy cakes, death and destruction as the backdrop to tea, cucumber sandwiches of death. And yet, before the variety shows and comedy sketches, we lap up the most evil creatures in the universe, according to Doctor Who. The most potent of destroyers, the Daleks. Now, the show often does very little to hide and sometimes deliberately emphasises that this lot, the Daleks, well, they're basically the Nazis. Strong subject matter, whatever the weather, and however far from the Holocaust we find ourselves, there are images and events that are, and forever will, and should be, seared into our heads as a horrid warning from history, one that we forget at our peril. And yet, Doctor Who manages to use this hideous ideology to create a race of alien creatures that are both feared, the scariest thing of all, really, in the TV show, and, and this is magic, well, I mean, it's certainly indefinable, adored. The Daleks are somehow figures of comfort in our cultural landscape. Genocidal war machines who remind us of a TV show that comforts us, wheeled out for personal appearances, comedy sketches, adorning pencil cases, and mimicked in every playground. They are comforting, yet scary. They're like, I don't know, boiled eggs and soldiers with a final solution. A mix that absolutely shouldn't work. Yet another example of things of dissonance coalescing to palpable effect that is somehow impossible to describe, even though we all understand what it is. The Daleks are the Daleks. They're scary, they're brilliant, and we love them. But every time they appear on screen, it is a bigger moment of drama that jacks up the fear factor as any. They also have a sink plunger on their arms, sound like Zippy from Rainbow with a massive hangover, and have been mocked erroneously, I know, for their inability to climb the stairs. Yet they are still an effective presence in a primetime TV show after all of these years. If the jokes at their expense had really hit the mark, then they wouldn't keep coming back. They'd undermine the very programme, they actually always end up boosting. Dalek merchandise and Dalek stories are the ones that translate best to the general public. So even if our public discourse often mocks their implausibilities because they are familiar to us and we feel comfortable taking the piss, the genius synthesis of that voice, that design and that very concept somehow creates a cultural phenomenon whose impact is undeniable and unassailable and proves them to be, frankly, a work of genius. Magical genius. Indefinably magical geniusness. <laughs> now, I think today, often the modern audience, and I have been guilty of this, extol Doctor Who's virtues on the occasions uh, when it has done political satire or reflected the times, to the extent that now a lot of people take the programme very seriously indeed. But for Doctor Who... As John Pertwee's doctor said when asked if being serious was his bag, about what I do, yes, not necessarily about the way I do it. That, being too serious, that's the killer. I mean, the doctor is the one that is unserious sometimes. The Daleks are the ones who are always serious. That's kind of the point. And that's the point of the show too. It's a silly show. But often, the silliest things are the ones that speak the most sense. The silly fool 
was the only one allowed to speak truth to the king, he got away with it thanks to his silliness. He may have been making serious points, but it was disguised in the motley. If he'd given the king a stern lecture on intersectionality, or proffered him a leaflet, or scolded him for his regality, well, he'd have been for the high jump. The minute the Doctor Who and its fans take itself and themselves too seriously, it is dead. It defies you with the ludicrousness at its core. A stupidly dressed eccentric fighting rubber monsters in a spaceship that looks like an everyday object. Yet it makes you feel every death, it makes you jump at every shock, and it makes you blown away by every big idea. And, in a way, it's the silliness that allows us then to contemplate the show's more serious intent, when it has it, and takes the sting away. And that's good. That's what the imagination does. It manifests our fears and shows us how to defeat them. And often, a good sense of humour is the very key to defeating and overcoming our fears. The biggest thing we fear is often fear itself, and the programme is also a show about defying such limitations. The things that hold us back, often just things in our own head. File under imagination lack of, says the Doctor about light in Ghostlight, because of its inability to conceive of that which cannot be catalogued, and that is seen to be its greatest failure, this list-making falsetto space angel of scientific intractability. But imagination is key to the stories of Doctor Who, stories about reaching beyond your limited horizon and to the stars, but charmingly also celebrating the earthly things that we're stuck with. The Doctor loves our funny little ways and celebrates the small, everyday things that, to steal a phrase, life is all about. None of us are little or unimportant in Doctor Who. The Doctor sees some worth, some indefinable magic, in the ape-descended primitives that we are. Because although we are ape-descended primitives, we like music, and we like science, and we like jokes, and we like jelly babies. Doctor Who actually celebrates the plucky individual. Often a guest character, or even a companion, is an ordinary Joe like us, who proves to be capable of extraordinary things. And seeing that puts a spring in our step, and a flutter in our hearts. Perhaps as we survey our humble surroundings, or fret about our own underachievements, or, I don't know, just seem to not be going any bloody where. Because for all my highfalutin optimism here, I know I absolutely throw myself into this programme because it can consume me so completely that I can temporarily forget all the things that plague me. One seeks escapism because where one is feels like a trap sometimes. Nobody tries to escape from somewhere they like. Now I know the bark of the black dog, and I say that not for UOK Huns, or because I think I'm special. Everyone has a universe of their own terrors to face. But I don't want you to think that optimism comes easily to me. That would make it cloying. I haven't gaily sauntered into Celebrationville. I spend most of my time pounding on the treadmill of Letdown Town. But I don't figure I'd be doing you any favours asking you to watch me while I'm working out. The Doctor laughs in the face of danger, and that's the lesson. It's not saying that everything around him is funny. It's saying that sometimes that's the best way to deal with the darkness. And yes, 
Sometimes the black dog is pretty bad. I mean, it's worse than any in Doctor Who. Yeah, worse than the cyber shades. I know. However, I don't think it's helpful to impose that aspect of me on anyone else. I only mention it here in case my outpourings of positivity are mistakenly interpreted as, as me having an overabundance of optimism. They're not. They're an attempt to shine a bit of light in the darkness rather than conjure the black clouds myself. There are enough of those gathering without me trying to draw them here like some kind of Pied Piper of the Nimbostratus. And whilst the show's storylines are often about overcoming limitations of imagination, of ambition, of self-esteem, the very making of the show embodies that ambition too. Creating the future out of the present, the extraterrestrial out of the earthly, the universal out of the mundane. Well, that's getting around limitations in storytelling form. The programme has not traditionally been able to do what big budget shows made today can do, partially because it's never had a big budget and partially because up until today it wasn't being made today. But limitations are good. Necessity, the mother of invention. And necessity has given birth to such wonders as the white void no-cast masterpiece that is the Mind Rubber Part 1. It's forced Terence Dix to tear up his vampires and almost overnight write a story about a small group of people in a lighthouse. And it's made various doughty artisans beavering away off any number of BBC corridors create title sequences out of new ideas, music from the ether and special effects out of condoms. And also, because the show can't necessarily depict everything it would want to depict, it has to use words, dialogue, ideas and acting to convey the horror or scope of the situation. And those are all things that make us use our imaginations. And if our imaginations are galvanised, then our brains dance. Just in the same way that physical exercise gets endorphins going and we feel better, a bit of brain stimulation as a result of putting our imaginary forces to work can only provoke us to be creative and enriched and inspired. It's the starting pistol to a mental workout. Now the show is limited in other ways too. It can't get too heavy on things too many lazy dramas rely on for a quick buzz. So Doctor Who is light on sex, swearing and extreme violence and instead has to grab our attention with other things. Primal fear, good jokes, suggestion, tension, character. All stuff that hints at the things that get us going but again, the show makes us do some of the work ourselves. We are active participants. We are following the cups as the magician moves them around, not letting our eyes off them. In on the trick. And Doctor Who has to be suitable for children despite being adored by a lot of middle-aged people. And so it is never written down to children, but rather it is written to be suitable for children. And that's the key. The show rarely patronises its young audience, even though it knows there'll be eight-year-olds in it. And it has to throw enough seriousness, and enough cheekiness even, to keep those adults happy as well. And when you are transitioning from kid to adult, and you start to notice these things, well, it's exciting. You spotted the rabbit. 
a rabbit shaped like a dig at taxation or Tony Blair or TV violence, coming out of the hat, the hat being your favourite tea time terror for tots. Conversely, if you're watching as an adult, you're invariably transported back to more innocent times. Times when you didn't realise it, but you had less to worry about. When your limbs were more elastic, your outlook less cynical, your fears more containable, where danger was exciting, life full of possibility, and where love didn't hurt. Life is wasted on the living, says the master in the TV movie. Well, youth is wasted on the young. It's like Judy Dench's observation about Romeo and Juliet, when you're at the right age and maturity to understand how to play the parts, you're too old to do so. Or, more prosaically, I think it was the comedian Roger Monkhouse who compared comedy to porn in a similar way. People prefer to watch young people doing it badly, he says, to old people doing it well. But it's a fruitless task. Indefinable magic. It's the equivalent of measuring a rainbow or weighing love. This making a universal assessment about a programme that means so many different things to so many different people. I've tried, but I've just defined a magic peculiar to me and my demographic and the time and space in which I was born. For you, it might mean different or even opposite things to those I have just outlined. This is nothing if not an entirely personal testimony, and it is certainly not scientific. Come on! Doctor Who's a show in which a wine bottle and a cuppa blocks a time experiment and a tea tray fortifies a moon base. That's the level of science I get on board with. But listen, that's the point. Whatever this show is, it has now appealed to several generations, and with ingredients that we don't traditionally see as of universal appeal or of cultural significance beyond the disposable. Kid stuff, the sci-fi genre, popular culture, hey, TV. Oh, and now it's definitely worth noting that there seems to be a high number of people from marginalised groups at the hardcore fan base, but there's also more than a hefty coterie of middle-aged, white, straight, male men too. But I can only speak for me. The more I see people on social media or in current discourse, the more I see there's a lot of unhappiness out there. People today are freer about sharing their woes, their fears and their angers in public. And it can be distressing and depressing to see, but maybe it's cathartic for them to do. And I know that I'm not alone when I say that despite my best efforts, I am a largely unhappy person. And I need things to help me get through the day, to arm me against the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, and to distract me from the darkness, to put that dog to sleep. And for me, somehow, it's Doctor Who. Now, as I say, I'm not a special case when it comes to unhappiness, but I think I am probably on the extreme end when it comes to Doctor Who. That show has had a particularly profound effect on me, but that's probably something to do with my personality type. If I do something, I do it too much. But Doctor Who isn't special because it manages to snare a list-making pedant with a propensity to watch the same things over and over again and find out how things were made. Doctor Who is special because almost everyone, certainly in the UK, remembers it from their childhood or knows what it is, or sees a Dalek or a scarf or a jelly baby and thinks, diddly-dum, 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 ooh-ee-oo. 
it has changed many lives for the better. It has inspired many great creatives and given gloomy, underachieving ones something to do when they're unemployed as well. But mostly, it gives people a good time on a Saturday night. And that's enough. Doing something because we want to, not because we have to, that's a winner, no matter what time and space you're having your adventures in. And people aged from 8 to 80, for some reason, want to watch Doctor Who. Often in vast numbers. For me, though, it has to go back to childhood. And, of course, I'm not being rose-tinted about mine, quite the opposite. And I know not everyone's childhood was good. Mine wasn't. Now, caveat alert, compared to many peoples, the vast majority of peoples in this world, and certainly the world as it was before I was born, my childhood was luxurious and safe. But I only have my experience. I cannot compare it to that of a chimney sweep or a famine child or a drudge. Everything is relative, and whilst I was in mine, my childhood, it was tear-stained and wretched and frightening and hard. And yet, thanks to Doctor Who, when I think about that childhood now, I think about when I first read that sentence in that book, or I first saw that picture of that monster, or what that roaring fire felt like on my cheek when that title sequence started. It took me away from it then, and yet it transports me back there now. The monsters of my childhood manifested themselves in all sorts of different ways, and they still linger today on the dark places of the inside. But when I think of Doctor Who now, and when I look back on my childhood and how I felt then, I know that when the Doctor is around, the monsters go away. But I'm no sentimentalist. Boy, it takes an effort to like Doctor Who sometimes. It's silly, it's daft. It's often bad. It's frequently frustrating. Sometimes it looks like it's going to turn out great only for something annoying to come along and spoil it. There's always a worry that it'll be misjudged or mishandled or come to an end. But it's also funny and scary and exciting. So a bit like life then. Now, I'm not saying Doctor Who is life. I'm not saying Doctor Who is as important as life. But I am saying that Doctor Who is magical. And that life can be too. If, despite its shortcomings and frustrations and limitations, you let it be. If you want it to be. Abracadabra. Indefinable Magic Defining the Magic was written and presented by me Toby Haydock The podcast artwork is by Dylan Patterson and the music for this series of podcasts was specially composed by Dominic Glynn.
I would very much like to thank the patrons who make these podcasts possible and ensure that they remain ad-free. And they include David Trainier, Frank Shales, Risto Matisarillo, Barry Platt, Adam Parker, Graham Knott, Kevin Murdoch, The Missing Episodes Doctor Who Podcast, Nathan Martin, Philip Marsh, Gavin McLean, Joe Llewellyn, Ian Key, Chris Hyam, Siobhan Galichon, Jason Gorman, Paul Dunn, Chris Dunford-Kelk, John Deere, Grant Davison, Rob Dawson, Peter Crocker, Richard Chalk, Paul Cook, Jenny at Blue Box 99, Nigel Bromley, David, who I think wants to remain anonymous, Tim Arding, Nick Tedston, Neil Tate, Richard Straw, Christopher Meredith, Rob Leonard, Ronald Hayden, Peter Harness, Peter Burns, Stephen Moffat, Jeff Sear, and Andy Case. Thanks to them all and to the others. And if you would like your name read out, you can become a patron by going to patreon.com forward slash Toby Haydoke. Tiers start from as little as £3 a month, and that gets you pretty much everything. It gets you the important stuff, the bonus material, the early releases, the monthly Ask Me Anythings, which are turning into quite a buzzy thing and getting longer and longer and longer, uh, and a bonus exclusive podcast called Far Too Much Information. And also I share material from my archive, some of which turned out to be missing from the BBC's archive, and that was uh, provided exclusively for patrons. Somebody pointed out that the BBC probably didn't have it, uh, and now they do. So it's all rather fun down there, and that's all for £3 a month. Uh, You can get other things if you ascend the tiers that go up 5, 10, 20, uh, etc, etc, etc. But, um, you know, that's sort of window dressing, really. It's a, it's a pay-what-you-want-slash-can-afford model. I don't like the idea of withholding anything. So it's patreon.com forward slash Toby Haydock, and you get a 10% discount, whatever tier you're on, if you pay for a year up front. So, um, and that helps to keep these ad-free. Well, it justifies my decision to make them ad-free, uh, and uh, it just ensures that I can justify giving a little extra time just to make sure that these things are as good and uh, high quality technically uh, as they possibly can be. I know times are tough, uh, the winter is coming, but unfortunately it's not an army of the dead that we can have an awful lot of fun and character development (laughs) uh, and drama fighting. It's just going to be cold and heating's going to be more expensive and food's going to be more expensive. So I totally get that uh, paying for frivolous entertainment is not high on the list of priorities, uh, but what costs you nothing is to go to iTunes, Podbean, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts and give these releases, Toby Haydoke's Time Travels, five stars, perhaps a few nice lines of review as well, uh, but five stars really helps with the algorithms and lets other people out there know that these are okay and that you know and that these are something that you can be listening to and uh, the more people that listen well the more it justifies the time that i spend and it makes me happy and that's not a, a huge priority i know but it's still quite nice you can also go to ko-fi.com forward slash toby if you don't want to do the monthly subscription thing there are no bonuses there but just the satisfaction of buying a freelance artist a metaphorical coffee uh, please also follow these podcasts on Twitter at Haydoke Podcasts. Uh, I have a Facebook page, um, uh, which is Toby Haydoke, but there's there's two. One's my own and one's for me as a comedian. Follow If you don't know me, follow the me as a comedian. It's still me. It just means I'm, I'm starting to sort of separate 
personal and professional life in a way that people have been telling me to do for about 15 years um so uh, all you know all work related stuff will be on the comedian page and um yeah if you social media social media the bahui out of these it just helps spread the word and i would be very very grateful oh and because this is a special one for anniversary week 59th anniversary uh happy birthday it's good isn't it